Welcome to the show, everybody, uh, friends, neighbors, fellow countrymen. We, we begin today with the esteemed mayor, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, it, it's interesting to, to watch Buttigieg because you see a man who is, who is, who is trying to cultivate a brand as this inclusive, tolerant, reasonable candidate, and yet also the wokest one of the bunch. He wants to be all of those things, and those things don't really, don't really go together in the end. And in a similar way, he's, he's trying to be seen as nice and relatable, even while he is clearly simmering with, with rage and disgust towards those people who don't think like him. And so there's this constant tension with this guy that you can sense and you can you could see it and hear it by listening to him for, speak for five seconds. It's, it's so obvious. Here's a great example, and this isn't the one that I want to focus on today, but, but uh, this just happened a few days ago, so it's worth mentioning. Buttigieg did a town hall on Saturday, and during the town hall, he was asked by a pro-life Democrat, there are still some of those left, apparently, whether uh, he thinks that she, a pro-life Democrat woman, should be welcome and included in his party, and here's how that went. We have a question now from Kristen Day about abortion. Kristen. Well, I am a proud pro-life Democrat. So do you want the support of pro-life Democrats, pro-life Democratic voters? There are about 21 million of us. And if so, would you support more moderate platform language in the Democratic Party to ensure that the party of diversity and inclusion really does include everybody? <laughs> well, I respect where you're coming from, and I hope to earn your vote, but I'm not going to try to earn your vote by tricking you. Uh, I am pro-choice, and I believe that a woman ought to be able to make that decision. Here's what I... But, but I know that the difference of opinion that you and I have is one that we have come by honestly. And the best that I can offer and it may win your vote, and if not, I understand. The best I can offer is that if we can't agree on where to draw the line, the next best thing we can do is agree on who should draw the line. And in my view, it's the woman who's faced with that decision in her own life. So you notice there, he never said, yes, of course you're welcome. And there was a follow-up too, where uh, because he dodged the question basically, and she, he was asked again directly, do you think the Democrat party should add language to its platform saying that pro-life Democrats are welcome. And he refused to say that, yes, I think they should be welcome. Um, point being, no, you're not welcome. You are not welcome. That was his message. He, a man to this pro-life woman said, you are not welcome. Which, which is true. Okay, it reveals something about himself, but it's also true that pro-life pro people absolutely are not welcome in the Democrat party. So what I would say to that woman and to any other lingering pro-lifers in the Democrat Party, you are definitely unwelcome uh, if you didn't get the, the hint yet. And you've been unwelcome in that party for decades now. So I, I would go and make other arrangements. I'm not saying go become a Republican. I don't care what you are. But uh, it, the Democrat Party, just, it doesn't, doesn't work with your pro-life ethics. Um, so, but he had, but, you know, so his message is, you're not welcome. But he said it with a smile on his face, and so it, it's okay, I guess. Now, this dynamic of Buttigieg being angry and spiteful and exclusionary, even while trying to cultivate the opposite kind of brand and image, is even more apparent on issues of race. 
And so I want to talk about that. There's, um, he, he, he did something. He, he sent out a, a memo that is, it, it's, it's quite easily one of the most racist things we've seen an American politician do in many years. And I'm not exaggerating. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But first, a word from Ancestry.com. Uh, you know, there are many paths to finding your family story, whichever way you choose, tracing your family generation back with a, with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity uh, with Ancestry DNA. It's, it's easy to get started with Ancestry. An Ancestry DNA test tells you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. Uh, you could find an infamous relative, uh, if you don't have enough of those already currently living, or perhaps a, a photo of your great-grandma as a, as a little girl. Uh, whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and the way that you look at yourself, because you're learning something, not just about your family, but by learning something about your family, you're learning something about yourself. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, but can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, uh, giving you insightful geographic details about your origin. So it really gets into the, to the nitty gritty. It goes, it goes into, into great detail. This is not just broad strokes. You're gonna learn very specific information. I've done this myself, and first I have to tell you, it, it, it's really easy uh, and very simple to do, quicker than I expected. Not knowing anything about it, I've, I've thought it'd be a, a more a longer, sort of more drawn out process. But um, sending in the test very easy, get it back uh, much quicker than you think. And I've been stunned, frankly, to see my own past, my own history, my my life come to life. And for me, uh, I, I, I've I've very much had this feeling of gratitude, seeing all that had to happen before me. When you think about how incredibly improbable it is that you exist. Because all of these many, many, many couplings had to happen uh, in order for you, as you are, to, to come into existence. And so that's one thing that Ancestry lays out for you, and I just find it pretty, um, pretty remarkable and, uh, and worthwhile. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at um, Ancestry.com slash Matt. That's Ancestry.com slash Matt to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com slash Matt. Ancestry.com slash Matt. Two T's, by the way. M-A-T-T. Okay, now, uh, back to the spiteful and exclusionary Mayor Pete. Case in point, the Buttigieg campaign sent around a survey to their staff uh, a few days ago. And Reed Epstein, reporter for the New York Times, has more information about this survey. So I want you to take a look at this. Here's the, uh, the screenshot of his tweet about it. Epstein reports, Buttigieg staffers circulated a survey of microaggressions on the campaign. Please only fill out this survey if you identify as a person of color, it reads. Um, answers, quote, will be used to inform our white colleagues about privilege and microaggressions. And then you can see the actual survey there. I'm not sure if it's too small to read. Uh, it says, uh, you know, as, yes, please only fill out the survey if you identify as a person of color, so on and so forth. Um, and then it says, in the workplace, have you ever experienced the following from a white colleague? Been interrupted slash talked over, left off a relevant email chain, not invited to a meeting directly related to your job idea was ignored slash dismissed without explanation. 
Someone else taking credit for your idea or insight, even accidentally. Been called the name of a different staff member of color. All of the above. Or other. So you can fill in your complaints if they weren't included on the checklist. And then there's a, a next part where, where it's sort of more essay-type questions where you can elaborate. It says, what does good allyship look like to you? What does good allyship feel like? What does bad allyship look like to you? What does bad allyship feel like? What does allyship in the workplace look like to you? What does it feel like? This is, this is starting to feel a little bit redundant. Think of a moment or moments during which you experience microaggressions. Without naming names of the people, can you name the microaggression? Describe those moments. What was the physical environment like? If it happened in, in, in the if it happened in the ether, for example, in Slack, email, or text, identify that. Were there witnesses to it? And if so, do you think they recognized it? You know, microaggressions in the ether. You've got to look out for that. That's that's really the main place. If you're in the ether, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the ether, right? And that's where the microaggressions really come on pretty hard. Okay. There's so much going on here. I, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll, first of all, Notice the word identify there. Identify as a person of color. What does that mean? Well, we know what it means. Anytime somebody on the left uses the identify as qualifier, what is meant is anyone who is this or anyone who has delusions of being this. So Buttigieg is leaving the door open for the Rachel Dolezals of the world. He's saying that even our race is subject to feelings and we can change our race based on how we feel. Which, if we can do that with sex, of course we can do it with race. Making race fluid and subjective is much less extreme than making sex fluid and subjective. Because, in fact, race is, in a way, a fluid thing. Now, it's not so fluid that you can decide 32 years into your life that you want to be a different race. It's not that fluid, but... Uh, but it is, it is a, there's a, there is an actual spectrum of race and ethnicity, whereas there isn't one with sex. So if you're going to do it with sex, then of course you can do it with race. Um, and, and it's not a surprise then that the left is doing this, but I do want to point out that they are doing it. They, they, they are now officially making even race and identify as sort of thing. Um, and then also just the, the, the phrase person of color, I have to say, and I know that Buttigieg didn't invent this phrase himself. He's, he's, he's dutifully using the phrase because it is the, it is the politically correct phrase of the moment. It'll change you know, five, five years from now or two years from now or six months from now, it'll be a different phrase. And all of a sudden, if you use that phrase, you're a racist. But right now, this is the phrase to use. But it's, it's, it's sort of a nonsensical phrase because it includes everybody, person of color, Caucasians, contrary to popular belief, we are not colorless, translucent monstrosities. Okay, I know that I personally, as a, as a white person of Irish ancestry, I may get close to that, but I'm not actually that. We do have color on our skins. And, and, and it's not even like we have less color. That doesn't make any sense. It's not less color. It's not even a different color. It's just a different shade of brown. We're, that's what we all are. We're all different shades of brown. So once again, the politically correct term actually causes more division and more segregation, which, which, which in, in fact is what it's intended to do. Because it sets up this dichotomy of people with color and people without color. 
even though that category doesn't exist? Imagine what you would think, okay? What would you picture if you were a space alien in another galaxy and you were eavesdropping on our uh, radio transmissions and you kept hearing about people of color who exist on Earth as opposed to other Earthlings who apparently have no color? So you would imagine that there must be on Earth this group of Earthlings who are like ghostly apparitions wandering the countryside, no color, like walking jellyfish, almost entirely see-through. That's what you imagine. That's, that, that's the image you would have in your head. Um, anyway, then you get to the actual survey. A survey about how his staff feels, a survey about, the, about their fragile emotional states. But he clarifies at the outset, if you're white, I don't give a damn. I don't want to hear about it. I don't care about your experiences. How is this not racist as hell? I mean, how is it even legal? Forget about ethical. How is it, given all the laws governing these sorts of things, is it actually legal for an employer to send out a, a survey asking his employees, have you ever had problems with people of this particular race? Think about that for a second. Just think about what this is, what, what's going on here. This is what he asked. He starts out, if you're, if you're this race, I don't want to hear from you. Shut up. Okay, people of, this, of the other race over here, have you had any trouble with these folks? With these people? How is that? Again, is it even legal to do that? It feels like it's probably not. Imagine, imagine this survey, but with black colleague instead of white. Imagine a survey that begins with, uh, this is a survey for white people. If you're black, uh, please, we don't, we don't want you to fill it out. And then it begins with, uh, to, to any white people, have you had any problems with your black colleagues? Here's a list of problems you might have had with them. Imagine a survey like that. Imagine the reaction. It's literally unimaginable because it would never happen. But think about it just for a second. Think about the reaction in our culture to something like that. If there were Republican, and you could say, well, Buttigieg is white, so it's okay. Okay, well, fine. Imagine a, Repu a, a black Republican sending a survey like that about his black uh, employees to his white. I mean, it's, it's the, it would be a, an explosion of outrage unlike anything we've seen in recent years. But somehow it's supposed to be okay in the reverse. Somehow, this kind of grotesque, explicit racism is supposed to, for some reason, somehow be okay. Nobody can explain why it's okay. No one can explain that. There's this, there's this constant double standard with racial issues. No one can explain the double standard or justify it. There is no justification. It's obviously a hypocritical double standard. But... The answer is, well, deal with it. And then what are the questions? What are these horrible things that these uh, people of color on the staff are experiencing at the hands of their translucent, ghostly counterparts? Well, a whole bunch of stuff that all adult humans experience all the time. A whole bunch of stuff that all, this all just simply comes with the territory when you're a grown-up in modern society. 
I was interrupted. I wasn't invited to a meeting. Oh, what persecution. What a burden. First of all, not being invited to a meeting is a blessing. Who, who complains about not being invited to a meeting? When I don't get invited to meetings, I, I throw a party. It's the greatest thing in the world to not have to go to a meeting. But yes, what a uh, you are the only person ever in history to experience such trials. People are so desperate for persecution that they cling to these minor social miscues and annoyances. That's what it is. Being talked over. That happens to everyone literally every single day. It happens to every person. If during the, their, their time, during the day, they speak and have conversations with other people. If you do that, it is 100% guaranteed you're going to be talked over at some point, probably multiple times. It happens to everybody. So we take these really super minor, we call them micro, I, microaggression. Well, it's that, that actually is an apt phrase. It is micro. It is microscopic. And what you're doing is you're taking this microscopic, you can barely even see it. You're taking with tweezers out of a Petri dish, this microscopic, little, tiny, small, social annoyance, and you're lifting it up and saying, look what happened to me. But what we do is we take these things, turn them into a race thing or a gender thing. This is, this is a, you know, feminists complain about this too. Oh, I'm talked over in meetings. Meanwhile, it happens to everyone. So, okay, if, if you're talked over or not invited to a meeting, and then you say, oh, it's racism, or oh, it's sexism, well, what about when it happens to a white man? How do you explain that? You're not going to call it racism or sexism, so in that case, it's just stuff. It's, in that case, you're going to say, well, it just happens. So why couldn't it just happen over here? Every time it happens here, it's racism or sexism, but when it happens here every single time, it's innocuous? Does that actually make sense logically? No. Um, by the way, before we, we, we move on and uh, stop picking on Buttigieg, speaking before about the person of color phrase, I should mention that Buttigieg thought, did think of an even more bizarre variation of person of color. And uh, anyway, I, I have to play this for you. Listen to this. Mayor Buttigieg, just to um, follow up on that, it seems like some of the concerns within your staff have to do with how they are personally affected by your inability to uh, make movement with voters of color and some of the controversies that have popped up over the last several months. What have you done personally to address some of those concerns from your own staff who uh, have to answer to their friends and their families about why they support you for president? First of all, I just want to say I'm so thankful to staff of color who bring so much to this campaign. Uh, surrogates, staff, and supporters who put a lot on the line uh, in their own lives when they decide that they're part of this effort. And I think we're part of it because we share the same values and because we share the same goal of, of what we want to do in this campaign and, and for the presidency. And I want everyone on our team uh, to know that I'm proud of them, that I'm thankful for them, and that I support them. Staff of color. Staff of color. That sounds like, uh, it sounds like something a flamboyant wizard might wield against his adversaries. The staff of color. Uh, now, do you think, staff of color, it, it, uh, but do you think any of this, all this stuff that Buttigieg is doing, using phrases like staff of color 
and sending out these racist memos, dividing his own staff down according to their race. You think any of this is is succeeding in, in doing what it's supposed to do, which is impress the radical left? That's what he's trying to do, obviously. He's trying to impress them. And you think any of it is, is it succeeding? You think the left, you think the, the radical left, they're seeing all this and they're going, wow, gee, this fella gets it. He's not like those other white folks. You think that's happening? No, it's not. It's not happening. The reaction generally from the left to all of this has been, you know, not good enough, not enough. Or I've seen some some of them saying this is actually insulting and demeaning, which it is, in fact. Um, because not only, it, it, with a memo like this, not only is it racist to the white people, but it's patronizing and paternalistic to the, quote, people of color or the staff of color. But um, so it's not even succeeding. And this is the same theme we always go back to where you've got people embarrassing themselves, humiliating themselves, groveling, saying all these things they don't believe. You, you, think, you think Pete Buttigieg actually think, cares about microaggressions? or You think that's a phrase he would ever really sincerely, authentically use on his own? No, of course not. There are about 15 people in, in the whole country who really think that microaggressions exist. And all 15 of them have blue hair and they're college sophomores, okay? Everybody else, no one else actually, it, it, with, with so many things on the left that they get away with, it's almost nobody really believes it. Another, of course, big example with the gender stuff. How many people really, actually, honestly believe that the you know muscle-bound male running in the girls' track team is really a girl in some mysterious, mystical way. How many people really believe that? Really, in their, in their heart of hearts, believe it? I think, again, it's the 15 blue-haired college sophomores and no one else. But they get away with it because we're all expected to go along with things that we don't believe. And Pete Buttigieg is more than happy to do that because he is a coward. All right, let's go to, um, well, before we, we, we move on, I want to check in with our friends over at Ring. There's nothing more important in your home than feeling safe. That's, that's, that's really the, one of the primary, it's the, the main point of having a home, actually, is to, is to be safe and to be sheltered. That's why you have the home. And so to, to, to be in your home and not feel safe um, I think can be a real emotional burden. And that's why Ring is so important. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You might already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. So if there's a package delivery or surprise visitor, you're going to get an alert. You'll be able to see it. You could be 2,000 miles away, and you're going to know that there's somebody at your house. And that's thanks to the HD video and two-way audio features on the Ring device, which, yes, also... Uh, not only can you see that they're there, but you can speak to them as well. And there's a lot that comes with that. Convenience is a big thing. But um, and it's not all about safety, of course. It's also just sometimes you can't get to the door. You could talk to the person who's at the door, and it's a convenience thing. But then it's it's peace of mind as well. And uh, for me, we have Ring. We've got multiple Ring devices in our home. And uh, so it's, it's just a peace of mind knowing that I can keep an eye on things 
and that I have that sort of uh, control over my own house. As a subscriber, you have a special offer on a Ring Welcome Kit available right now at ring.com slash Walsh. The kit includes a video doorbell and a Chime Pro, which is just what you need to start building a ring of security around your home today. Go to ring.com slash Walsh. That's ring.com slash Walsh. Okay, so <clears throat> I finally have a chance to talk about this. I've been meaning to talk about it for a few days now. Paula White, prosperity gospel televangelist, theological scam artist, also spiritual advisor to the president, unfortunately, was recently doing some preaching and had some interesting things to say, including appearing to pray for miscarriages, although she says it was taken out of context. But let's play the, the clip first, and then we'll talk about her context for this. Hey, 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 we interrupt that which has been deployed to hurt the church in this season, that which has been deployed to hurt this nation in the name of Jesus. Forgive us for our sins. Come on, I need you guys to pray. We cancel every surprise from the witchcraft in the marine kingdom, any hex, any spell, any witchcraft, any spirit of control, any Jezebel, anything that the enemy desires through, through spells, through witchcraft through any way that is manipulation, demonic manipulation, we curse that. We break it according to the word of God. In the name of Jesus, we come against the marine kingdom. We come against the animal kingdom. Any The woman that rides upon the waters, we break the power in the name of Jesus. And we declare that any strange winds, any strange winds that have been sent to hurt the church, sent against this nation, sent against our president, sent against myself, sent against others, we break it by the the superior blood of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus, we arrest every infirmity, affliction, fatigue, weariness, weakness, fear, sickness, any self-righteousness, any self-serving action, God. Let pride fall. Let pride fall. Let pride fall. Let pride fall. In the name of Jesus, we command all satanic pregnancies to miscarry right now. We declare that anything that's been conceived in satanic wombs, that it'll miss carry. It will not be able to carry forth any plan of destruction, any plan of harm. Okay, she's praying <clears throat> that satanic pregnancies will miscarry. Miscarry. And she has, she's, uh, well, she's responded to, to the controversy over these remarks, explaining that it was taken out of context. She wasn't talking about physical pregnancy, she says. She meant spiritual, spiritual pregnancy. And, um, as in, I guess, anyone who's pregnant with an evil plot, that the evil plot will miscarry. This is what she says, quoting her. This is how she contextualized it. She said, anything that has been conceived by demonic plans for it to be canceled and not prevail in your life. That is, any plans to hurt people. All right, so so the, so the, the satanic pregnancy, so Satan then is, Satan is pregnant with plans to harm you, and, and she's praying for a miscarriage of those dastardly plans. <laughs> Listen, I here's the thing. I believe her, actually. I, I believe her explanation. I 100% believe it. It doesn't make sense. It's the dumbest, clumsiest, crassest metaphor I've ever heard in my life. I mean, literally any other imagery, any other words would have been better to get her point across. She chose the worst possible way to phrase it. And a way that, even as metaphor, is insensitive to women who've had miscarriages. There, there's, why evoke that imagery at all? Um, 
why evoke miscarriage as a positive thing that you pray for? Why do that? There's no reason to do it. But um, but I do believe that 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 is what she meant because it it makes even less sense literally. It makes no sense either way, but it it makes slightly it's slightly more uh, nonsensical in a literal way. So fine, she meant whatever. I, I'll 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 buy her excuse. Um, that was metaphor. Of course, she said she she said she has said a lot of things that are not metaphor, like for example, this. Wherever I go, God rules. When I walk on White House grounds, God walks on White House grounds. I had every right and authority to declare the White House as holy ground because I was standing there, and where I stand is holy. Where she walks is holy. Where she walks, she herself has the power in herself to sanctify any place that she walks. But, of course, we could spend all day going through Paula White's various heresies and blasphemies and and the like. The point is that, that this person is such a blatant huckster, so explicitly in it for her own fame and wealth and gain, uh, so damaging to Christianity in so many ways that she shouldn't have a following at all. We shouldn't be talking about her satanic pregnancy concept at all because she shouldn't have any congregation to say that stuff in front of. I think what Christians what Christians have to think about and understand is that when we follow and listen to and give credibility to and money and a platform to people like this, it's not only ourselves and our own souls that we're harming. We also damage the church as a whole, Christendom as a whole, by elevating these people into visible positions who are so obviously corrupt, so absurdly obvious in their, in their grift, um, and, and people who are, who are not Christian, you know, they look at someone like Paula White, and they say, well, yeah, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is Christianity. This is why I'm not Christian. Here's something we should think about. I think, I think, I think every Christian should, should, should think about this. And it's a difficult thing to think about. It's a difficult thing to, to try to, you know, it's a difficult perspective to adopt. But we should think, okay, what if I wasn't Christian? What if I wasn't Christian? What if I wasn't raised in the faith? And now I'm looking as an outside observer. I'm looking out at the scene. I'm surveying modern Christianity. I, I have no bias in favor of it because I wasn't raised with it. And let's say that I don't have any bias against it particularly either. Let's just say I, you know, I was raised kind of neutral on the subject of Christianity, which a lot of people are. Um, <clears throat> I'm coming at, from, at it from that perspective with that mentality. And I'm looking at modern Christianity in America. What would I think? What would I think? What would you think? Would I look at this landscape replete with televangelist con artists and hacks and charlatans and unthinking sheep who follow these clowns around? These, I mean, I'm sorry, these frankly idiots that you see in the, in the audience of these people go clapping and applauding. Would I look at that and think, wow, these Christians really seem to be onto something. I've got to pay closer attention to what they're saying. Would you think that? Would you? I wouldn't. I can tell you right now, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't look at modern Christianity, American Christianity, from the outside and think to myself, this seems like a system of thought, a belief system that holds within it the very keys to the meaning and purpose of life and of the cosmos. I don't think I'd think that from that perspective. And we could say all we want, no, but you can't, that's not fair, you can't judge us by Paula White. All right, fine, I mean, we could say that. But the problem is there's a lot of Paula Whites out there. Maybe they're not all as bad as her, but there's a lot of them. And, um, and that's a problem. And it's a problem we, we need to be very much conscious of. I mean, it, 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 and we, you know, it's easy for us to do this with other religions. I mean, we look at Islam, for example, and we see how there is obviously a huge problem with people committing heinously violent acts in the name of Islam. And then we hear Muslims say, well, but you can't judge it based on that. That's not, you know, and, and yeah, they're, they're in a better position to talk about what Islam actually teaches than we are. We're not experts on the subject. I'm certainly not. But even so, from the outside, we listen to that excuse, even if it's true. But we listen to it and we say, yeah, I don't know. Well, what do people say? What do, what do they think with the Paula Whites of the world? By the way, um, going back to that Paula White clip again, I just want to rewind the tape. We don't have to actually play it again, but... Um, because we've addressed the miscarriage part. I didn't, I didn't want to completely skip over the other thing she said. She mentioned twice. The marine kingdom. The evil spirits of the marine kingdom. She's praying that we come against the marine kingdom. You know, I heard this, and um, it, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't pick up on it the first time that I listened to the clip. I, li- I listened back to it, and I thought, wait, wait, what? Marine? What is she talking about? And I, you know, I've been a Christian for 33 years. I've been to hundreds of churches in my day. I've never heard that before. I've never heard anyone praying against the Marine Kingdom. And so I looked it up to see, like, what is this? And apparently this is a thing among some Christians. None, no, it's not a thing in any of the churches I've ever been to, thank goodness. But it is, a, it is actually a thing. Uh, there are some who believe in an actual aquatic kingdom of like monsters and demons who live in the sea. Uh, I read somewhere, I I forget where I read this, but I was reading somewhere online, some website about this, and apparently this includes mermaids. There are satanic mermaids who are part of this belief that that some people believe. That like, I I mean, if you go into the ocean, there's an actual underwater, like Atlantis kind of demonic community living there. And this, but again, this is the kind of thing, it's, it's so embarrassing. And, you know, this is not a widespread belief, thankfully. Actually, I don't know how widespread it is. I'd never even heard of it before. But um, it, it, it's, it's, it's so stupid and, 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 and embarrassing that it, it does great damage to the credibility of the Christian faith. Okay. Um, now, before we uh, move on, if you're a regular listener, you've obviously heard me talk plenty about the pro-life issue, which is the great uh, civil rights issue of our time. 
Joe Biden says that transgender rights, transgender equality is the great civil rights issue of our time. I tend to disagree. I say that uh, the, the killing of 60 million human children is the greatest civil rights issue of our time. Uh, and there have been few civil rights issues in the history of, of the human race that have been as serious as this when you consider uh, the, the death toll of 60 million. But what we know is that while this is happening and, and we as pro-lifers are doing everything we can, hopefully, to uh, oppose it and fight against it and to protect these, uh, these unborn children, these victims, we know that the left is going further and further off the cliff, getting more extreme and more radical. And while they do that, they're also um, working to shut down the opposition. And we've had that happen to us. Uh, when Ben Shapiro spoke at the March for Life last year, uh, there were you know, our advertisers being targeted by left-wing media watchdogs and pitchfork mobs, and we lost a lot of revenue on top of that. It's not the first time that happened either. We're also not the first targets or the only targets at all of the left and of the pro-abortion left especially. Live action is one of the biggest voices in the pro-left movement. They've fallen victim to this as well. Um, they've had their advertising efforts uh, restricted or shut down completely on some platforms. They've been shut, they've been kicked off of some platforms completely. And um, that is why it's so important. That's why we're so grateful to have you uh, supporting us and keeping our cameras on and our microphones turned up, even when the left puts pressure on our sponsors, even when they try to shut us down. That's why from now until January 31st, a portion of any dailywire.com membership will be donated to live action with promo code live action to support awareness and education around the world on this issue. So join live action and make your pro-life voice heard today. Um, all right. So I thought this was, was powerful. I think we'll, I was going to read some emails, but I think instead I wanted to talk about this. So we'll, we'll do this instead of emails today. But you can email the show, mattwalshow at gmail.com. I, I thought this was powerful. Uh, me, along with every other person with a pulse who saw it. And if you haven't seen it, I think you should. A segment on ESPN. This is L. Duncan uh, reacting to Kobe Bryant's death by sharing a brief story. And it's a story that uh, I think is worth hearing. Listen to this. I met Kobe one time backstage at an event for ESPN in New York. And I saw him and I thought, oh my gosh, that's Kobe. I got to get a picture for the gram. Hmm. That's the picture. I didn't get it for a few minutes because as I approached him, he immediately commented on my rather large eight-month pregnant belly. How are you? How close are you? What are you having? Mm -hmm. A girl, I said, and then he high-fived me. Girls are the best. I asked him for advice on raising girls, seeing as though he quite famously had three at the time, and he said, just be grateful that you've been given that gift because girls are amazing. His third daughter, Bianca, was about a year and a half old at the time, so I asked if he wanted more children. And he said that his wife, Vanessa, really wanted to try again for a boy, but was sort of jokingly concerned that it would be another girl. And I was like, four girls, are you joking? Like, what would you think? How would you feel? And without hesitation, he said, I would have five more girls if I could. I'm a girl dad. When it came to sports, he said that his oldest daughter was an accomplished volleyball player and that the youngest was a toddler, so TBD. But that middle one, he said, that middle one was a monster. She's a beast. She's better than I was at her age. She's got it. That middle one, of course, was Gigi. When I reflect on this tragedy and that half an hour that I spent with Kobe Bryant two years ago, I suppose that the only small source of comfort for me is knowing that he died doing what he loved the most, being a dad, being a girl dad. 
Now, this sparked a girl dad hashtag, hashtag girl dad uh, on, on social media with men talking about their experiences of being fathers of girls. And uh, a little corny, admittedly, but but also that, that's not a bad thing. It's one of the more wholesome and constructive trends to grace social media. And certainly a nice change of pace from the usual petty outrages that suck up all the oxygen. I'll, I'll take the, the corniness every once in a while. Um over over the the petty outrage that is is pretty much seems to be 98% of the content on social media these days. Now as a girl dad myself, two daughters, uh, two sons also. I I can relate and this is the thing that I haven't been able to get out of my head the last few days. I've been thinking did did Kobe Bryant and the rest of the people on that chopper and remember there were nine people so there were seven others in, uh, alongside Kobe Bryant and his daughter. But did they realize what was happening? Did the helicopter start going down and they had a minute or 30 seconds or 15 seconds uh, where they understood what was happening and they understood that there's a good chance they weren't going to make it? It sounds like the thing maybe just crashed right into the side of a mountain because of the fog. And you know they, didn't, they couldn't see it. They didn't see the mountain. They crashed into it. I don't know if that's what, hap- what happened exactly. It sounds like that may have been what happened. And in that case, probably there was no warning, no moment of realization before the end. It just just happened. Um, So I don't know. But whether it happened that way or not, I still can't get out of my head the image of of a man sitting there with his daughter knowing what's going to happen and knowing that he can't protect her. Because as girl dads and boy dads and as dads in general, the thing we want most is to protect our children. That is our number one goal with respect to our kids, is to protect them. Not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, to to create security and give them a secure environment and, and to protect them and to get them into adulthood safely, intact, in every sense of the word. Uh, so the thought of a man staring at his little girl, looking her in the eyes, knowing that he can't protect her, knowing that pain and death are coming and he can't stop it, that's that that really gets me. And it's something that I think about. I mean, I think about this. It's sort of a, it's morbid. I, I tend to be kind of morbid. Maybe you've noticed. So I, it was one of the reasons why my mind went here is because I've thought about this. I've, I've flown with my kids several times as a lot of people have, and I, I think about this every time I'm on a plane with them. Plane starts going down. What would I say to my kids? But then I think, as I was thinking about that, I realized that all of us, all dads, all moms too, we're all in that situation all the time in a way. And this is why there's always this undercurrent of sadness and it's, it's hard to put your finger on. It's hard to understand as a parent. But I've talked to a lot of parents that have experienced the same thing and know what I'm talking about. That even in your happiest moments as a parent, and in some ways, especially in the happiest moments, there's the happiness and the joy. But underneath that, there's this bittersweetness, this, this sadness and this sort of longing that, that lies there barely beneath the surface all the time. And it's hard to know exactly why it's there, but I think this is it because we want nothing more than to protect our children and we would die to protect them. We would do anything for them. Yet we know that our efforts 
will prove futile eventually. Hopefully not in this tragic, dramatic, sudden way like it did, sadly, for Kobe Bryant and his daughter, but um, or maybe, but maybe it will. I mean, that, that could happen to any one of us at any time, something like that, sudden tragedy. But however it happens, we know eventually pain and suffering will come for our children no matter what. This is guaranteed, and we won't be able to stop it. So you look at your child now, if you have young children especially, you look at your children, young and innocent, they haven't suffered yet in life at all. You know, their, their worst suffering is when they want a snack and you won't give it to them or something. But, and you think eventually they're going to suffer one way or another. Not now, we hope, not soon, but everyone dies, everyone suffers, everyone experiences despair and heartbreak and misery. Everybody does, no exceptions. It's the lot that we have all, it's, it's the, it is the, it's all, all, for all of us, it is our lot in life and for our kids as well. One day, tomorrow, maybe, or maybe many tomorrows from now, it will happen. And that reality, that helplessness, is, a, I think, a source of great pain for parents. We don't dwell on it. We try not to. But it's always there. And that's where parenthood's bittersweet flavor, I think, uh, comes from. So I think about Kobe Bryant on the helicopter with his daughter. And maybe he had a warning. Maybe he didn't. But either way, in microcosm, he was in the same situation we're, we're all in. And not to resort to cliches, but sometimes when talking about these sort of things, it's impossible not to resort to cliches because there's a reason why they're cliche. There's truth to it. So the cliche here is that, you know, as parents, we have to cherish all, all the more the moments that we have with our kids now, give them all the love now, all the protection, all the security we can, knowing that it won't last forever. Um, there's, a, there's a real finitude to it, which is another thing we don't like to think about and don't like to dwell on or obsess over, and we shouldn't. But... We shouldn't forget it either, I think. Uh, so that's what I was thinking about, wanted to share. Um, on that note, a little bit of a sad note, but I think we will wrap it up for the day. Thanks for watching and listening. Thank you for subscribing. If you don't, please subscribe as well. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Editor, Donovan Fowler. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. CNN's Don Lemon and two talking head sidekicks spend nearly a minute and a half of airtime laughing about how stupid they think half of Americans are. We examine why leftists love humanity, but always seem to hate actual humans. Then liberal Democrat Alan Dershowitz demolishes House Democrats' impeachment case in a little under three minutes. Liz Warren throws a Hail Mary, Hillary threatens to run again, and Drag Queen Story Hour is coming to a public school near you. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Hold up. 